Good morning, everyone. As Vessel said, my name is Gareth, uh, and I have the incredible privilege of serving on the team that pastors Common Ground Durbanville. Uh, and I especially want to say good morning to our teenagers uh, who are in the room with us this Sunday and next Sunday as our frequency leaders take a very, very well-earned break. Uh, we introduced a whole bunch of new content, new syllabus uh, this last term with our teenagers. I've been hearing fantastic things um, in terms of how it's been going, uh, and our leaders have just been doing phenomenally. So I just want to say thank you to you guys, uh, and I hope you enjoy, even if it's just a short break, uh, before we dive into term four. I am continuing our series, Living in Babylon, uh, and if you're new or you're one of the teenagers who hasn't heard the series up until now, we're working through 1 Peter, uh, and kind of the lens that we're looking at all of life through is that those of us who are followers of Jesus are aliens and strangers in our own city. Just as God's people Israel were relocated to Babylon thousands of years ago and found themselves living among a people that worshiped different gods to them, had different priorities in life, a different way of living because they didn't worship the one true God, that is our experience when we come to know Jesus. Our lives are pointing in a different direction towards our true home, and we're pointing others there even as society and the world goes in a completely different direction. Now, one of the questions that is raised when we consider that we are aliens and exiles is how then do we relate to each other and to other people? How do we relate as a community amongst ourselves and to the world at large? And the section we're busy with at the moment is exploring different case studies of relationships of how we who follow Jesus are to engage in these relationships. We started off two weeks ago at the broadest level considering how we engage with non-Christians in society and with government. Last week, the case study was of slaves who were believers who had unbelieving masters and they were being mistreated. And then Peter just took a short excursus to point to Jesus because Jesus is always the model. And he said, slaves, as you consider what it's like to be mistreated, look to Jesus who was mistreated. Now this morning, we're kind of been narrowing focus on closer and closer relationships. We're going to consider marriage. The big idea this morning is that marriages should point to the gospel. Marriages should point to the gospel. Now, the teenagers are all going, oh, why am I in on a sermon on marriage? That's the furthest thing from my mind. But actually, as we consider marriage, it speaks to who we are as men and women. It speaks to different roles that God gives us to play in different kinds of relationships. It actually speaks to some of the core issues in our society at the moment around gender and sexuality and men and women. And even if you're not ready to think about marriage, I know that you're thinking about those topics. And so I think it's going to have plenty to say to you this morning, God's Word, as it always does. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Heavenly Father, won't you help us to have courage as we come to your word today? A word that just proves to us how much we are aliens and exiles when we consider how you've created us, male and female, how you've designed us to relate to one another in society and in particular in marriage. It is so foreign and alien to much of our culture's understanding. I pray for courage this morning as we seek to align our lives with your word and point to your truth and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As Vessel said in our prayer meeting this morning, what came through really strongly was this idea of courage. And I was just thinking as, as we were praying, how much courage is needed when we think about this topic. We're, we're gonna talk in a moment about how society has a very different view of gender and sexuality and marriage than Scripture does. But as we were praying this morning, I thought actually there's another area even closer to home where we need courage. And that is particularly if our marriages are struggling. Psychologists tell us that the final step downward towards your marriage not making it is disgust and contempt. It's a trajectory towards that, and if that's the trajectory that you're on, that's a warning sign for you about your marriage. And the reason that courage is needed is because what Scripture calls us to is pretty much the opposite of that. The way we call to honor, to submit, all the words we're going to get into, and I'm going to unpack, I realize some of you might be sitting here going, that is just alien territory. That is just not where my marriage is at at all. Either because we're way, way, way gone, or we're just on this downward slide, this downward trajectory. It's not a trajectory towards the words that we read here. And the place of courage is never in our ability to self-generate some kind of an emotional response because that can't last. And so I just want to orient us, first of all, this morning, before we get into marriage, I want to orient us to the place where courage comes from, and that's actually the passage that comes immediately before this. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the reality that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. We're gonna talk about what a marriage that points to the gospel looks like, but some of you might be sitting here going, that is just alien to my experience right now. And so the call on you is courage, but not a self-generated emotion, but a looking to Jesus who forgives everything that is wrong on both sides, whatever the intricacies, whatever the not looks like in your marriage, forgives it 
and returns your strain. Your courage is in him, in his ability to change your heart, in his ability to change your spouse's heart, in his ability to sustain this beautiful thing of marriage that he has created. And I just wanna front load with that because otherwise, some of you are gonna be sitting there going, I'm just switching off because this is just not my reality right now. Maybe not, but it is the reality that God is calling you to because there is a blessing, because it is beautiful, because it points to the gospel, because it is for your flourishing and your peace, which is what this letter is all about. Marriage points to the gospel when it is based on how God has designed and made us. I read this passage and I am just so aware of how this is contrary to our culture. Be subject to your own husbands. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Those are not ideas or currencies of verbiage that carry a lot of weight or honor in our culture. What's so fascinating is that the culture that Peter was writing to would have been just as offended by these words as our culture is, but for exactly the opposite reasons. You see, all of our cultures have things in them that are good because people are made in God's image, and all of our cultures have things in them that are contrary to God's word and his ways because we're sinful and so scripture always cuts across culture. It always cuts across society. It just cuts across it in different ways. Let me show you this by explaining how that society viewed women in particular in those days. Can we pull up that quote for me there? Thank you. This is from a, a, a commentator and theologian. He says, dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man because she lacked the capacity for reason the male had. That's their view there, not my view, that's their view there, okay? Because she lacked the capacity for reason the male had, she was ruled by her emotions, and was as a result given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, I'm going quickly, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as such it was her place to obey. That's the culture Peter's writing to. And yet they would be as offended by these words as we are, just for different reasons. They would be offended by the fact that Peter was actually writing to women. Philosophers didn't write to women. Moral apologists didn't write to women because that's what they thought about women. There's no writings where they say, woman, this is how you are to organize your household. It's all to men because of how they viewed women. They would have been highly offended at the equality that is called for when he says... Women are heirs with you, husbands, of the grace of life. You see, our culture's always gonna have ways that it disagrees with Scripture. They would have agreed with the submission and the obedience for all kinds of wrong reasons, but they would have been just as offended. And so, if you feel offended, I wanna ask you to just reason with me for a second. Is it possible that God's word would offend us? I think it is. I think if it is God's word, by definition, it's going to offend us because there's some areas in our lives that line up because we're made in his image and there's some areas in our lives that don't because we're sinful. And so we can't just write it off if we find this offensive, if we disagree with it. We actually have to reason together and that's what I'm asking you to do with me. Peter's culture got this wrong because they relegated women. They quite frankly had a misogynistic view of women, which just means the way they treated women was incredibly cruel and unkind and demeaning. 
we get it wrong in our society today because the idea that men and women might play different roles, well, no, we can't have that because isn't gender and sexuality simply just a choice? It's not a biological thing, is it? I mean, surely we just get to decide and there's probably hundreds of different genders and, and the way you're born doesn't really affect your sexuality. The doctor assigned you a gender at birth. It's not really who you are. You decide who you are. And so the idea that men and women can have different roles in marriage, oh, we love the equality stuff. Oh, they got that part wrong back in Paul's time. Oh, but this, this, stuff, this stuff about equality we love but the stuff about distinctiveness and difference, no, that, that, that can't be right. If we're going to have marriages that point to the gospel, it has to be based on how God has designed and made us male and female in his image and likeness. Together, in both the things where we're similar and the things where we are different, reflecting God's image. And so this is going to make us aliens and strangers. Some of you are very, very aware of how much this makes us aliens and strangers how much we need to be lifting up our arms for one another and standing together when people face opposition and difficulty around us. Marriage points to the gospel when it's based on mutuality and difference. This is just building on this previous point. I wanna to show to you in Ephesians chapter five, which is Paul's great passage about marriage. Paul writes... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, jumping down. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Literally, that passage reads, you can skip forward in on the slides. Do we have it? Okay, maybe we're just having some technical problems this morning. Uh, yeah, one more. Literally, in the original language, it actually reads, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to their own husbands. The priority, the overarching idea here is that we submit to one another and it looks different in different relationships. The way that a wife submits to a husband is different to the way that a husband relates to a wife. He relates by laying down his life as Christ laid down his life for the church. The wife relates by submitting. That's actually exactly what we see when we go jump back to 1 Peter 3. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Likewise to what? Well, he's continuing the argument he's been making all along. Back in chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is about how we relate to one another, which is primarily a relationship of serving and submitting because that's what we see in Jesus. It looks different in different roles that God gives us to play, but there is a mutuality. It's not that one is above the other. This is a mutual submission to one another, wives submitting to husbands, husbands living with wives in an understanding way, husbands laying down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his life for the church. It's a mutuality because it's not a hierarchy. We are all made in God's image, male and female, 
But God has made us distinct and different and beautiful in that way. Marriage points to the gospel when wives model submission and respect. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Jumping down, for this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. There's kind of two mistakes we can make as we approach the section on wives around this idea of unbelieving husbands. Peter has primarily been talking about how we relate to unbelievers. And so the one error we could make is we could say, well, perhaps these are just instructions if your husband is an unbeliever. It's not instructions in general about marriage. It's just instructions if your husband is an unbeliever. Or the other error we can make is we can, we can have a, a wife say, well, you know, all of those women over there, their husbands are believers, so, so she, they can submit to their husband." But my husband's not a, not a believer, so I'm not going to submit to him. I'm not called to do that. No, we, we, we don't get to do either of those things. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. This starts off as a general instruction. Our marriages are supposed to point to the gospel. What Peter writes here lines up exactly with what we see in Ephesians 5 in general instructions to husbands and wives. So this is not just for wives whose husbands are not believers, but it's also not the case that if your husband, if you hear this morning and your husband is not a believer, you are not excluded from this. And the reason is because of how our deeds and conduct point to the gospel. What Peter says here lines up exactly with what we saw him say two weeks ago, relating to non-believers in general, even if they accuse you of evil, when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of Jesus' judgment. They come to you and they say, what's this crazy superstition you have following Jesus? But actually, I'm intrigued because you exemplify the good values that I hold. And we're going to see next week, they end up asking questions that we answer with gentleness and respect. And they end up glorifying God on the day of Jesus' judgment. This is exactly what we see here. The scenario is that the wife has shared the gospel with her husband. We know that because it says he's disobedient to the word. This is not to say that, wives, you don't share the gospel with your husband. No, she's already shared it because he's disobedient to it. She's told him, hey, Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died in your place for your sins. He was crucified, buried, three days later rose again according to the scriptures Testify to by hundreds of witnesses. You need to place your faith in him. And the husband has said, no. So this is not a case of preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, the words have gone out and he's rejected them. And now he's saying, okay, there comes a point once you've done that, where if you're just going to your husband every Sunday going, you need to come to church, 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 you need to come to church. It's not going to go so well for you, is it? One of Peter's goals is peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, he says at the beginning. May the peace of Christ be with everyone, he says at the, at the end. You're not going to have a lot of peace if you're doing that every single Sunday for year after year after year. She shared the gospel with him. He's disobedient to the word, and now she's going to win him over by her conduct without words. That's the scenario in specific 
But the scenario, whether it's the specific of a wife as an unbelieving husband or wives in general, marriage points to the gospel when wives model submission and respect. And we read this, be subject to your own husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Honey, are you going to call me Lord from now on? For those on the camera, she said yes. No, no, she didn't. She didn't. (laughs) She didn't. That doesn't sound very good to our ears, does it? Immediately, we're back to picturing, is, is Peter talking about a hierarchical relationship where the woman is subservient to the man and she just you know, does the dishes and you know, cleans up after him, picks up his socks because he never picks them up himself? No, that one's excluded. Um, is that what he's talking about? Because that's what culture would think if, we, if we're not careful in how we say this. How do we know what Peter actually meant by this? Well, he gives us a case study. He says, just as the woman of old, and he gives us a specific example, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. If there's a case study of what this looks like, well, then we should probably go look at it, right? So we're going to flip there. Genesis chapter 12. Don't put it up on the screen yet, Ian. I just want to set the scene. It might surprise you. That's why I don't want him to put it up on the screen just yet. So the scenario is that God has said to Abraham, You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, which is ultimately a prophecy about Jesus and how he comes and blesses all people. Problem, Abram and Sarah haven't had kids and they're in their 90s. Abram's approaching 100, okay? Things are biological. The biological clock is not ticking, okay? It unwound a while ago, okay? I said Genesis 12. I believe it's Genesis 18. It helps if I turn to the right scripture. There we go. So, that's the scenario. Uh, Let's read. You can put up the text now. They, that is the Lord, and some angels said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Shall I have the pleasure of children? That's a rather interesting case study. That's the only occasion in Scripture where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's the only place he can be referring to. And so maybe there's a little bit more nuance going on here than simply some sort of a subservient relationship. The one thing we do clearly see is the respect that Sarah has for Abraham. This is not a case of a subservient being forced to call somebody something. It is a cultural way of indicating deference and honor and respect. Even when she's laughing at how ridiculous the situation is, actually there's still a respect there. That's what I think is so interesting about this. It's perhaps the moment when you would think like, Oh, that old codger, get me pregnant, not a chance, right? No, that's not what she says. She still refers to him as Lord. So it's not about subservience, it's about respect. As we consider Sarah as Peter's case study a little bit further, we see there's a number of occasions in Genesis where Sarah comes to Abraham and says to him, hey, here's what we should do, and Abraham listens to her. 
So again, using the case study that Peter gives us, this is not just a someone's in charge and somebody just has to listen. That's not what submission means. We see a mutuality. We see a give and take. We see a respect. We see what we would expect to see in a relationship. Let's think about submission a little bit more. We saw when Peter spoke about slaves and masters and slaves being mistreated about their masters, he pointed them to Jesus and the example of Jesus. That's always where we go. Let's consider submission in the example of Jesus. Jesus said, everything that the Father tells me, that's what I do. Jesus said, let this cup pass over me, referring to his crucifixion, but not my will, but your will be done. And I, as I was reflecting on Jesus' submission, I was reminded of this incredible verse in 1 Corinthians 15. This is talking about when Jesus returns and death itself has been defeated, and when all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The model of submission is Jesus. Jesus in his earthly life, but what is incredible is we see even when death has been defeated, Jesus returns, there's a new heaven and a new earth, the lamb is on the throne with the father, there is still a submission. It's not a hierarchy because there's no hierarchy within the nature of God. This is a deferring to. This is a voluntary letting go of control in favor of somebody else. That's what we see when we look at Jesus and how he submits. Now, we've been talking theologically. You might be sitting there going, okay, Gareth, that's all well and good. Give me some practical handles. What does this actually look like in practice? And that's actually really hard and the reason it's really hard is because I think in every marriage, it's probably going to look a little bit different. It's going to look different because there's different personalities and there's different gifts. But I can think of one example. It's not quite a marriage example, but it's very closely related that I think might be helpful in terms of thinking our way through this. And that is the, the standard by which we try to actually do elders and pastors meetings. I think it's helpful to think this through. So bear with me as I set this up. Our eldership team consists of six men. Our position is that the men are the pastors and elders of the church. But when we meet, our wives are with us. Not to bring the coffee and give us a head massage while we talk. No, our wives are fully with us in the meeting, contributing. And it's not like, okay, there's the wives turn to talk and then the real decisions are made. No, it's not like that in the slightest. It's as likely that one of our wives is going to have an insight or a biblical contribution that leads to the conclusion that we eventually decide on as anybody else. It's not like their, their vote is worth a half and ours is worth seven. No, no, we are coming to consensus together around Scripture and conviction, and our wives are part of that scrum together. But they are not the elders. There's a voluntary submission that when it comes to carrying the can— when it comes to taking responsibility for the decisions that we made, when it comes to taking responsibility for the flock that is this church of which we are under shepherds, that we carry that weight and they submit to that. If you come and you want to complain about a decision that we've made and it was one of our wives that sparked that idea, we're not sending you to them. No, 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 you're going to come speak to us. 
because they're in submission to the authority of the elders, even while they are part of that scrum together, contributing with, with their gifting. Nowhere in Scripture is gifting gender dependent. Contributing with their gifting and with their biblical insight as part of that together. And marriage is gonna look different to that, and every eldership team will look different based on the gifts and personalities in the room. But that's, that's maybe the best kind of generic example that I can give you in terms of thinking through what does this look like in terms of my own marriage. Submission points to the gospel because marriage, we're told in Ephesians 5, is a lived-out parable of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And in that lived-out parable, the wife is taking the role in the parable of the church who responds to Jesus' loving leadership and submits to him. That's how it points to the gospel. Wives point to the gospel with submission and respect. Peter talks about when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, young teenage ladies in particular, you may have a desire to be beautiful and to be acknowledged as beautiful. And what I see in this text is that that is a good and godly thing. Your desire to be beautiful and to be seen as beautiful in this text is a good and godly thing because it says there is a kind of beauty which is imperishable and which in God's sight is very precious. Your desire to be beautiful and to be acknowledged as beautiful is a good thing that because we live in a world that is not our home, gets twisted and corrupted and focused in entirely the wrong perishable way. There's a kind of imperishable beauty that you long for because it's precious in God's sight that the world twists in perishable ways and makes it all about the external, makes it all about your sexual attractiveness, makes it all about the compliments that you're able to get and even though we've known for decades about the lies of airbrushing and Photoshop, we continue now with the correct way to pose for Insta to make your thigh look just that little bit thinner because if you look over the age of 25, you probably don't belong on Insta, which just proves how perishable it all is. Your desire to be beautiful and to be acknowledged as beautiful is a good thing. There is a beauty that is imperishable and precious in God's sight. Some of the ladies who are a little bit more mature are beautiful in this way. I'm not gonna mention names because that would just be awkward and weird. But there are some women, some ladies in our church that are beautiful in this way. They have a gentle and quiet spirit. It is an internal beauty of character that rather than fading, no matter how much cosmetics and accessories and jewelry and clothing you use, will always fade, no matter how many facelifts the celebrity is able to have, sooner or later it falls off a cliff. That's fading. But the beauty of character is ever increasing. Why do you think 
It's a gentle and quiet spirit. I was thinking about that because gentleness and quietness in Scripture are not particularly associated with women necessarily. In fact, one of the requirements of being a church leader is that you are gentle. So why, why particularly in this instance does he go with gentle and quiet spirit? And I think it's because in the topic of submission, I think there's just a gentleness and a quietness that is required in order to let go of responsibility and allow a husband to take the weight of responsibility to be in submission. I think the only way to do that well is with a gentleness and with a quiet spirit. If you're going to be kicking and holding on and, no, you have control, I have control. No, 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 I want this. No, I can't do this this way. It doesn't work. There's a gentleness and a quietness that is required. Now, remember, we're talking in the ideal scenario of a husband submitting to a of a wife submitting to a husband who is laying down his life as Christ lays down his life for the church. But we're also talking about submitting to a husband who doesn't love Jesus. Young ladies, it can be hard to let go of control if you've got a godly husband who's doing everything he can to conform to God's word and he's repenting. I put it to you, it is way, way, way harder if you're getting together with a guy that doesn't love Jesus no matter how much of a nice guy he is. It's gonna be way, way, way harder, but the way that you point to the gospel is the same. You want to be, when you get married, submitting to a man that is laying down his life for you and repenting when he gets it wrong, not someone who's just a nice guy, but he's living in the opposite direction to you. It's not gonna go very well. It's really, really not. God can redeem that, God can fix that situation, but. Don't, don't go there. Just don't go there. Why do you think, he says, that this kind of internal beauty versus this cosmetics and hair and jewelry is respectful and pure conduct? That's the example he uses of respectful and pure conduct. Well, you need to understand a little bit about the culture of the day. You see, among the rich and the wealthy, the men were told, your wife is simply there to give you a legitimate heir you actually find your pleasure in intimacy with prostitutes and slaves. And so you have these wealthy women who are being absolutely neglected by their misogynistic husbands who desire to be beautiful, desire affection, and so what they would do is they would dole themselves up. They would do the hair elaborately, they would do the jewelry, there's writings that talk about this, and then they would go to specific places and they would kind of, just the way that they were flaunting themselves, let it be known that they were available. Peter's saying, we can't behave like that at all as we follow Jesus. It's disrespectful to your husband. It's impure conduct. We can't be sending cultural messages that are inappropriate with following Jesus. Now, I'm on very, very thin ice culturally as I speak to this. I'm very aware of it. I'm on very thin ice. Gareth, are you body shaming women? Are you saying women are responsible for how men look at them? No, that's not what I'm saying at all because that's not what Peter's saying. This is not about how some dude who doesn't have his thought life under control might look at you. It's not about that at all. It's about the intention of your heart. These women were doing that intentionally to send a message. 
when we think about this topic of modesty that is such a landmine topic, what Scripture says to that, the biblical principle here is, in your heart, don't dress in such a way that you know you're sending a specific message. It's dishonoring to your husband. It's dishonoring to your relationship with Jesus. It's impure conduct even if you're not married. You're not responsible for what other people think and do, but you are responsible for how you think and how you dress not in terms of what somebody might misinterpret, but in terms of your intention. We point, wives, marriage points to the gospel when wives model submission and respect. But ultimately, it's not actually respect to the husband first and foremost. It's respect to God himself. He talks about the respectful and pure conduct of wives. The, the word there can actually be translated reverence. Not just respect for husbands, but reverence for God. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The reason why you can submit even if your husband is not a believer is because ultimately respect is not directed primarily to him. It is directed primarily to God. It is a reverence of God. It is a hope in God. He talks about that which is frightening because it would have been very frightening for a woman in that culture to say to her husband, I'm not going with you to the temple of the gods that you worship. That was socially deviant at an unbelievable level. That would have been incredibly frightening for her to do that. And so we're not talking again. We're not talking about what he says goes. We're talking about a role of voluntary submission and respect, but that respect is ultimately to God. And even if you're in a difficult situation, it's not the situation that you live in fear of. It's not the situation that you are in awe of. It is God himself that you are in awe of. Now, he says a bit less to husbands. And I suspect, just my thought, I suspect that's because there would definitely have been women whose husbands were unbelievers, but there probably weren't too many men whose wives were unbelievers. And the reason was women were coming to faith at that stage way more frequently than men, and primarily because, or certainly one reason was because of how the gospel elevated the view of women in that culture. They've been called co-heirs of Christ. So, here's what he says to husbands. Principle is this. Marriage points to the gospel when husbands model honor and understanding. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's just dive into the elephant in the room. Weaker vessel, okay? I think I've already established that by that, Peter is not referring to moral inferiority or spiritual inferiority or intellectual inferiority. If he bought into his culture's view on that, he wouldn't have bothered to write to the woman. No, whenever the scripture talks about people as vessels, it's talking about our physical bodies. Paul talks about being a clay jar or a clay vessel that is fragile through which the power of the gospel comes through. Peter's point is simply that if we are all clay jars, women are physically weaker clay jars. Most of the time, men are physically stronger than women. Women are the weaker physical body. That's what he's saying. A number of years ago, we preached a series on sexuality, and we looked at power and violence in sexuality. 
And while I was reflecting for that series, I went in there my wife, and I said to her, have there ever been times when you've backed down from an argument with me because you felt like I'm physically imposing? For those of you who don't know, I'm about a full 30 centimeters taller than my wife almost. And to my shame, she said, yes. There's definitely been times when you're kind of like looming and I felt the need to back down. And so this week, four or five years later, I asked her that question again. And she said to me, sometimes still with your voice. I'm loud in case anybody wasn't aware. And so I've still, I've still got more work to do. I've still got more repentance. I've still got more aligning myself with the gospel, with Peter's words here to do. But the reality that men are physically stronger most of the time to women, we're very aware of it in South Africa. We're very aware of the effects of it with gender-based violence, domestic violence, things that have absolutely no place among God's people or in society at large. It's brutal and it's evil and it is terrible and we can have no part of it and we have to call it out and oppose it. But then this is what happens. This is a bit less in South Africa, although it is here. It's primarily overseas at the moment. But society looks at this situation and says, well, the answer then must be to take men and to take their aggressiveness and their desire for conquer, to conquer and just tone that way down because the way that it is expressed is so ungodly towards women. And so we create cultures where, where men are basically told to just sit down, tone it down, tone down the drive, tone down the natural aggressiveness that you have. The desire to be significant very often is suppressed as part of this. And then in response to that, we have dudes, I'm not even going to call them men, we have dudes that get onto YouTube and get millions and millions and millions of followers that tap into young men's desire of drive and significance and aggression and conquering and say the right way to express that is conquering women and accumulating possessions. That's the flip side of what happens. And some of you young guys might be listening to them on YouTube. And I'm not gonna name them because if you know who I'm talking about, you know who I'm talking about. And if you don't, I'm not gonna introduce you. Just as Many women have a desire for beauty and to be seen as beautiful and it gets twisted and perverted and corrupted in culture. So many men have a desire for significance and a drive and a desire to conquer something and it gets taken and twisted and perverted in culture. Misogynistic, pornographic ways with guys on YouTube saying this is how to be a man. They can't even conquer themselves. True conquering where the battle begins is against our own flesh. If you want to conquer something, learn to conquer the impulses and desires that you have. Learn to conquer your desire to be misogynistic in whatever way, shape, or form. Learn to conquer your desire to lessen the words of women in your life and to take them less seriously and to look down upon them. Conquer that then maybe you can take on the responsibility of having a wife and having children and laying down your life for them and taking on the responsibility for a family the way that Jesus takes on responsibility, the good and the bad. 
Because if we think of marriage as a parable of the gospel, if the wife is playing the role of the church, the husband is playing the role of Jesus, which is laying down your life, not just in the good times, but it's taking responsibility for everything, the good and the bad. That's why what those dudes on YouTube are talking about is nothing like significance and conquering anything of value because they can't take on the bad. As soon as there's anything negative, they have to run away from it and try to find the next conquest. There's no significance to that. That's like invading another country and the second they raise their eyebrow at you, you run away. No, many, many men have this desire, drive excellence to conquer. And we certainly don't externalize it in terms of violence to women. We also don't externalize it in terms of misogynistic, pornographic relationships with women. We start off by conquering ourselves, the sin inside of us through the gospel of Jesus, and then learning to deal with the good and the bad, laying down our life so that we're pointing to Jesus. Honor is to be the word that describes our relationship with our wives. How do you speak about your wife when she's not around? Do you listen to her opinion as much as other people's opinions when she is there? Do you just like kind of try to shush her a little bit to the side because you don't quite agree with what she's saying right now? I know all these examples because I've done all these examples. Honor, calling out the good, valuing, lifting up, even when you disagree, especially if you disagree. That is to be our relationship with our wives. That is what points to the gospel. Understanding that we are physically stronger and that creates power dynamics within relationships that we are responsible for. Honor and understanding points to the gospel. And I need to say this. I've got nobody in particular in mind here, but Peter goes here, so I'm gonna go here. Some of you might be praying for specific things. Some of you might be trusting God for things and your prayers are not being answered. The question you've got to ask yourself based on this text is, is it because of how I'm treating my wife? I'm not putting that on anybody. I'm simply saying if you've got prayers that are not being answered, you have to ask the question based on this text. Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You don't treat her as anything less than a co-heir of the grace of life. And if you do, your prayers might be hindered. Marriage must point to the gospel because the goal is not marriage. The goal is the gospel. It'll always be an imperfect analogy. It'll always be an imperfect parable. But even in its imperfection, it does point to the gospel. And part of the way it points to the gospel is in our imperfection, we get to come to the shepherd and overseer of our souls where we haven't had the courage to go against society, when we haven't had the courage to go against our natural inclinations because things in our marriage haven't been going very well and it seems far more reasonable to head down the road of contempt and disgust than it does submission and honor. In that moment, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Whether you've never been married and that's a sore spot for you, whether you are married and things have been difficult. 
whether you have been married, divorced, and you're carrying things around that, spouses passed away, all of us are carrying wounds in the area of our gender, in the area of our relationship with men and women, in the area of marriage, and all of those related domains. And the beautiful thing is it's not marriage that is the hope. Marriage is a parable of the hope. The hope is in Jesus. The hope is that we can return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I wanna pick up on something that Vessel did earlier. I'd love you all to stand. And I wanna do it in the same way that Vessel did earlier. If you, if you feel in faith to pray for other people's relationships, marriages, young people, views of gender, understanding of the differences between us, whatever, if you feel in faith, even if you don't have it right and perfect, we don't do perfection, we don't model perfection, we model repentance. Why don't you raise your hand if you've got faith to pray for marriages, to pray for young people. We're standing together. We're standing together because we've all experienced hurts. We've all experienced sin. We've all done sin. All of our marriages are less than perfect. All of our singleness is less than perfect. All of our dating lives are less than perfect. But in courage, we come, not because we can drum up the emotional response, but because we're returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls who laid down his life for us. Heavenly Father, along with my brothers and sisters who've raised their hands here, I wanna pray for our marriages. I wanna pray that we leave disgust and contempt, we leave a worldly way of looking at sexuality and we return to the principles of your word that point to the gospel. Let our marriages be a parable lived out before the world of Jesus laying down his life and the church responding in submission and obedience. I wanna pray for courage to do things differently. Courage not in ourselves, but courage that when we follow your word, you are with us and your principles bring life. I wanna pray for a faith that dares to believe your word in this area in marriages that are struggling right now. A faith that dares to say, even though things have been spiraling in the opposite direction, I'm gonna take God at his word and I'm gonna to begin to live this out no matter the current state of my marriage. For wives who are gonna say, no matter how things have been going badly, but I'm gonna model submission and respect. For husbands to say, even where things have been going badly, I am gonna model honor and understanding. Courage because you lay down your life. Courage because you give us your Holy Spirit. Courage because even when we get it wrong, going forward, we've already been brought back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls who laid down his life for us. I want you to open your eyes and just look around the room and just look at people that are raising hands, standing with you. God's people standing together as aliens and exiles, as understanding we do it differently, understanding these times it's gonna be hard, but standing with one another, fighting for each other's marriages, praying for each other's marriages, fighting for each other as singles, praying for each other as singles. Father, thank you. You can put down your hands. Father, thank you for this community. Thank you that we get to gather together around your name, around your glory, and around your word. We get to have our lives directed towards flourishing and peace and life. In Jesus' name, amen.